Okay, today's episode is just amazingly exciting, different. We are going to do it so, so different because we have an attorney, and you guys know me in attorneys, but we have the attorney that understands investigations. So first off, right off the bat, introduce yourself, Lloydette. Hi, everybody. Um, I am Lloydette Bimaro. I am a lawyer, um, a British lawyer, um, so I don't use the term attorney. <laughs> um, I'm a British lawyer. Um, my background is as a government prosecutor. I used to work for a number of different government agencies, including the UK Serious Fraud Office. And about four years ago, I started on a little adventure to build my own white collar crime economic, white, um, white economic crime consulting practice. I think we'll have to do that bit again. No, that's, that's, that's totally fun about this. I want to say how we got introduced was through uh-huh. Hunt. Yeah, Ellen. Ellen is great. Um, and she just connected me to a whole bunch of people. Um, and it was just, it's low, it's been actually so amazing to just meet people that are on the other side of the world, but really cool and um, like kindred spirits in many ways, just people who get what I do um, and who are doing amazing things in their field. One of the things I've loved about this season, even though we've all been kind of homebound, is the opportunity to connect with people who are just doing phenomenal things in their field and trailblazers, and I love that. Well, so you have, okay, on LinkedIn, you know, I'm a huge LinkedIn person, and you have so much great content that is so helpful. So, and the biggest one recently is the investigator's mindset. Like, can you tell us how you started that? Did like, you have this strategy, I'm going to do this investigator's mindset, or did it just come organically? It really did come organically. Um, I was thinking about different approaches to my content um, because uh, some of the stuff that I've done on LinkedIn or some of the stuff I do on LinkedIn uh, is pretty heavy. And, um, you know, you're talking about technical um, aspects of the law. You're talking about new law. You're talking about deferred prosecution agreements and the technicalities of each agreement. And those can be quite heavy heavy lifting uh, for those who are reading and we live in this generation where i think people like to consume information in smaller bite-sized pieces and so the investigative mindset was sort of my it sort of developed as kind of oh let me maybe do some maybe some tips some things that investigators need to think about um and then actually i you you engaged with one of my posts and you said on that post that um you know this is exactly the kind of mindset that investigators should have and so actually you were the inspiration for kind of then moving it from being like investigation tips to the investigator's mindset which i absolutely love um because i think it captures the essence of what i was trying to achieve um which is giving people information in digestible digestible um, short form that they can get that's simple. It's hopefully clearly articulated and hopefully that it hits the spot. Um, it does all of those. Absolutely. So I kind of like, because I'm so excited today, I kind of like skipped around. Okay. First off, we have to do the speed round. Okay. These are like three quick questions. And, um, if yeah, Mac or PC. Oh, definitely a Mac. I need a new Mac, but I'm waiting for Apple to release the 
the next version of the Mac because I refuse to spend that ludicrous amount of money on an old piece of software, an old piece of kit. So come on, Apple, do your thing. <laughs> buy more Apple stock. You know what? I have only had one person say PC, but she has an iPad. So she's kind of like a little split on that. So good to know. Going to go buy more Apple stock. Um, <laughs> because really seven out of eight people that I've been asking, it's clearly Mac. Um, yeah. Okay, who makes a better embezzler, uh, female or male? Oh, that's really hard. I think women do because I don't think they get caught as much as okay. men do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's what I think. That this is the you're we're like eight for eight. Um, yeah. And then who? What famous crook or cop do you want to go out to dinner with? and pick their brain? Oh, famous. I would go with the famous cop and I would probably go with James Comey. Ooh, really? Oh, that's an interesting mm. one. Ooh, yeah. A very, very interesting one. Well, that's the, I would probably get... that's the lawyer attorney in you. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't think I've had anyone say James Comey, but I think that would be interesting. My old yeah. boss went out to dinner with him. So, um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, I definitely cool think he's the kind of guy I'd like to have, like, sit around a dinner table with. I think it'd be really cool to speak to. Well, and another thing about Lloyd Depp, the first time we met, like, we were on a Zoom call, but I couldn't do the video, but mm. Lloyd Depp showed up in pink. And then and I gave her like a hard time about pink. And today she shows up in pink. So again, the subliminal Kelly pink color crime, they show up in pink. So too funny. Listen, the pink power is really strong because for some reason, again, and I promise you guys, I promise you, there is it's not intentional. I've been wearing this, the top I'm wearing now, I've been out in town and I've worn it all day. And it was not intentional. The pink, like Kelly's pink power, beware. It is, yeah, it's it's the stuff. It's the stuff. You, you do not want to mess with it. <laughs> oh my gosh. So on one of your posts the other, or no, I think it was on my LinkedIn post. We were talking, or I posted about Dan McCrum of the Financial Times and Wirecard. And I did not realize you did a video series of that. So I have to go and find that because I'm fascinated. But he had this comment about the daisy chain of investigations. And I think you commented about yeah. that. 28 in private investigators were investigating him slash the Financial Times at one point. What do you say about that. And these are all, I'm going to say, platinum level firms. Oh, you know what? I actually tackled this. I didn't actually know that, that with the number of investigators that were all trying to discredit him and the, and the FT. I knew that they were under a lot of pressure and they were getting it from a lot of different fronts in terms of the investigation element, but also that they were getting legal pressure, et cetera, et cetera. But it actually, one of the video, um, the blogs that I did or the video content that I did, we, I talked about this idea of making sure that you as an investigator, that you understand what what is going on with your clients, that you understand the type of clients that you're engaging with and that you know and that you've done your due diligence about that client, be that the reputational risk that attaches to that client be that what is being said about that client in the media, 
um, being said in privately amongst certain communities, you know, the ethics and compliance community, you know, and other areas where things may be said and that you have an ear to those communities. And I said that because you had so many different firms who were being pulled in to help Wirecard. And it just felt like none of them had, not many of them had done their due diligence about what was really going on in this company. And so for me, it was very much like, well, anybody, anybody thought to think, anybody thinking about what's gone on here? Anybody asked to see the previous investigations and the outcome of those investigations? Because you, you just don't dive in. And if you think only about the money and you think about the prestige that comes with, you know, being attacked, to a particular name, then oftentimes you run the risk of being incredibly damaged yourself by association when, when that house of cards literally comes falling down. Yeah, yeah. And he says at one point, they gave just enough material to for the investigators to quote, do their job. And he says, there's a bunch of lovely chaps out there and you know who you are. <laughs> Again, honestly, you know what, Dan, Dan and his team at the FT have done an absolutely stellar job, absolutely fantastic. Um, and in the face of a lot of provocation, but they stuck to their guns because they knew they had something, right? And again, for me as an investigator, and I'm looking at this, I'm talking about something around scope. You know, when you are given, when you're called in as an investigator and you're asked, um, and you're given one tiny little thing to investigate and the scope is so restricted, you have to ask yourself, okay, is there any room for flexibility here? Why is my scope so narrow? And if it's so narrow, then am I just kind of a pawn in a bigger game? Am I just being used to validate or give an air of legitimacy to a company or to an individual that actually is cover for their illegal, unethical actions? And unfortunately, some of these four firms, they walked right into that trap because they took that scope and they ran with it, but didn't maybe think about some of the bigger issues around this particular tussle between the FT and, and Wirecard. And as we all know, the FT were proven right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he said that um, he got a gift and it was a whistleblower. And so I, I do the hashtag whistleblowers are heroes, but I think my new hashtag is gift from a whistleblower because he considered it to be a gift. But he also talks about a book that he's working on and then a documentary. And I can't imagine, I, I'm so excited for it because he talked about, I mean, you're talking an investigative reporter that he would wait until the last minute for the tube and he'd jump off the train. Yeah, like, I know. Okay, how many reporters do you know that like, and once you get that paranoia. Oh, it's very difficult to shake it off. Oh my gosh. It is so incredibly difficult. So can you, without getting into specifics, can you, do you have a case where you've um, said no thank you? Um, do you know what? I haven't had a case where I've said no thank you, but I've had cases where I've asked lots and lots and lots of questions. And I've made it abundantly clear from the outset who I am and how I work. And so if you're going to come to me as a former government prosecutor, you know, I'm a litigator in and out. Okay, that's that's like 
it runs through me. And so I now support my corporate clients with a, a range of different issues that they have. But I'm also very frank. I'm very plain speaking. Diplomacy is not one of my stronger points. I'm working on it, but it is not one of my strengths. I completely accept that. I'm very much black, white, very little shade of gray. Um, but, you know, I set up my terms at the very outset um, and I will not be used as a, as you know, a cover for an organization. So if you're going to employ me and you're going to bring me, or you're going to contract me or engage me to conduct an investigation on your behalf, I need to have the, the freedom to do that. And so those discussions have, have been had <laughs> in, in pretty much those terms, <laughs> you know, so, you know, it, it's because for me, um, money is not the driver, you know, money is not what drives my, my passions or my deter or my the reasons why I do what I do or how I've built my business. Actually, it's about focusing on um, delivering excellence for my clients at every level. And that's like I said, I, I said in a post once, it's not about perfection, but it's about making sure my clients understand who I am, what I stand for, how I work, and also the, what kind of results they can expect when they come to me. And so, you know, if, if that doesn't work for you, then we can go our separate ways. There's a, a lot of people out there. It's okay. You can and let this one pass me by because my reputation is more important to me than anything else. And, you know, my integrity is more important to me than anything else. I've worked very hard over the years, you know, my entire career to build that. So I won't let one job and one paycheck be what ruins that. No way. Yeah. That's where I think we are kindred spirits because, yeah. um, you know, I remember working for an attorney on a case and um, she, she never hired me again. And I, I thought about it and I was like, oh, because I didn't give her the answer she wanted. I gave yeah. her just facts. Exactly. Like, and, you know, maybe I should have asked some more questions on the front end. Um, but we had a somewhat long relationship and yeah. uh, it bothered me for a long time. And then finally I came to the realization, like, they didn't really want the facts. No. They wanted, and, and, and like he said, um, like Dan McCrum said, they were buying an outcome. Yes. And, and oftentimes that is, that, is, that is the point of engaging independent investigators is for them to package up and give you something that's already been neatly put in a nice box with a bow on it and handed to you. And so you can go and say, hey, look, I've got this and it gives me the legitimacy that I need. This is just totally off the top of my head because I, your investigator's mindset, and when we've talked, I feel you really understand not only investigations, but investigators. And do you think that comes from your time as a prosecutor more so than say a corporate litigator who doesn't deal with or investigators as much as say the prosecution? I think it actually comes from probably my time as a prosecutor at the SFO, which was, you know, you're really at the cold face of these of these investigations. They're very high profile. They're very complex. You're dealing with a range of individuals. Um, but I think actually throughout my whole career, I've always had to work with investigators, be it the police or be it, you know, HMRC. So HMRC is like our IRS. So I worked, I did a stint there. And so you had to deal with the IRS officers. You had to say, again, they are the ones investigating the cases. My my original home department, again, was linked to this 
to the IRS. It was like the prosecution arm of the IRS at the time. Again, so the OHMRC as it is here. Um, and it's the same. You're, so I, I've throughout my entire career, even when I was training to be a lawyer, I was always engaging with with with, with investigators. And so as I as I moved through my career um, and got to the SFO, where I was dealing with I was actually working alongside investigators in, in a multidisciplinary team. You're now face to face with them on a daily basis, engaging with them, and they're, they're ex police officers, they're ex you know intelligence agency officers, and you really get to understand their approach. But also, I think I'm 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 a, I'm a good lawyer, but I also I think fit the bill of a good investigator. I think I straddle those two worlds very well. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of get it. <laughs> just, I just, I just get it. I know, I know often what they're thinking. Um, and I know what I, I know how to navigate the investigation space and what the challenges are that we as investigators often face, um, as well as the pitfalls that sometimes we can fall into by virtue of our own actions. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I, I think I'm unusual in that sense because I think there are lots of lawyers, no disrespect to my colleagues, many of them would like to think that they're investigators simply because they have the title attorney or lawyer or solicitor. But being a solicitor or an attorney does not make you a good investigator. I'm just putting that out there. Oh, I love you. Preach, preach, preach. <laughs> it won't make me popular, but it's the truth. It's the truth. And many corporate clients will tell you that. <laughs> so another post that like, again, all of your posts, follow Lloyda, hook up with her on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. Psychological safety. How yeah. important it is. Wow. Yeah. That, that post, you know, I was on my way to a meeting this morning and I was thinking about just reflecting on everything that's been going on down here. And it really did resonate with me about how do we create environments where those that we lead and those that we manage can make mistakes safely. And that seems almost as if it's an oxymoron, but it's not um, because uh, we as leaders and those who are responsible for teams really have to start to think again about how we create our environments to be safe. Because even in the ethics and compliance world, and I think chief compliance officers, you know, head of compliance, head of ethics, the whole lot, we are tasked often with, you know, implementing rules, implementing regulations, making sure people are doing what they need to do, making sure they're not falling foul or breaching code of conduct and all that sort of stuff. And I think oftentimes we don't necessarily think about whether or not we're creating environments that are safe. And we don't think about whether or not people who might make a mistake, whether they have the, they feel safe enough to be able to come and say, I've made a mistake, something's gone wrong. And, they, and it's not about, and, and by the way, I just need to say this, that it's not about avoiding accountability. Because most of the time when people have made a mistake, they're willing to, to pay the consequence. They're willing to pay the price. They, they accept that accountability comes with that. But do we as individuals who are leaders, do we create those spaces where those that we lead 
can come and confide in us and they can come and say, I made a mistake and I just want to let you know that I've made this mistake and know and trust that we will not hammer them to the ground and destroy them. Because oftentimes, you know, we, you know, the world is not, as much as I like to think it's black and white and very dark, you know, I'm very, it's right or wrong. There are shades of gray. There are issues that happen where people just make a bad judgment call on that day. Something just goes wrong. Do we create environments where people can come and speak to us? Do we create environments where they trust us as leaders? Uh, and I think, you know, the whole situation with the football here and how the players have been treated is exactly that issue around psychological safety. Are these boys, you know, they're boys, literally. I mean, they're 19, 21 and 23. They're young men, okay? Do we Are we creating spaces? Do we only celebrate people when they excel? Yeah. And when they're on the way down, we kick them as they go down? Or do we create environments in our workplaces that mean that, and we see this all the time in the UK with the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal, where a trainee has made a mistake or a junior lawyer has made a mistake and they can't tell anybody. They're too scared. And so therefore they make another mistake and another mistake to cover up. And then they end up losing their license to practice. Okay, criticize that lawyer, criticize that trainee, but actually think about what led them to that. Because if they had actually maybe done something and if they felt, if they felt, if they felt safe enough to actually go to their supervisor and say, listen, something's, I missed the deadline on this. I just want to let you know that. I'm so sorry. Actually, maybe it could be fixed. And even if it can't, it's not the end of the world. You know, so for me, it's really, it's really prompted a lot of thoughts and a, a lot of reflection about how we as leaders lead. Yeah. I mean, Dan Ariely, the, you know, behavioral economist at Duke, he did a study, and I believe it was with JP Morgan. And mm. the firms that did the best were the firms that people could come forward and say they made a mistake. And mm. I say when the firms that did the best, he was looking at analysis of return. on yeah. And yeah. it wasn't compensation. It wasn't exactly it was the firms where people felt safe to come forward. And people just, I mean, especially when you're young, mm. like, oh my God, I look back at some of just goodness. Um, and we have such a quick to react culture because we've got social media. So, you know, something in my generation, no one ever heard it, let alone record it, let alone posted it on, you know, social media for everyone to see. It's, it's rough for this generation with social media, much as I love social media. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, social media has so many benefits and it's so wonderful in many ways, but absolutely, you're, there's a trial by social media. And I think even as I was reflecting on this, you know, psychological safety point, yeah. Um, and the reality is, you know, for me as a black woman, that is something that I'm very familiar with because, you know, in my experience and the experience of many of my friends who are black is that you walk that line all the time of having to be perfect and having to be, um, you know, you can't drop the ball at all. And the one day that you do, actually what happens is you could have worked in that firm for five years and never made a mistake, but that one mistake disqualifies you completely. And we, you know, that that is just the reality. That is just the reality. And so, you know, even as we, 
engage with some of these issues. I think, you know, there are, we've, we've got to be, we've got to be honest about what is really happening in, in corporate UK, corporate US, whatever, because that's the experience of many people of color. Um, is that that one mistake disqualifies you. It takes you off the promotion route. It gets you fired. You, you, you know, you lose it all. So I was listening and I cannot remember which podcast I was listening to yesterday, but this might be a fun, sad fact is Wikipedia. You're familiar with Wikipedia? Yeah. 80% male, 20% female of the entries. Really? Yeah, there's a study. I'm going to have to find it. I'm going to have to What? That's mad. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Because, you know, I'm all about, like, I follow the, you know, no mammals on Twitter and everything like that. And they it was some professor somewhere, and I'll try and find it and send it and put it in the show notes, was 80% of the Wikipedia entries are males versus 20% female. It's... It, and I believe, and I can't say for sure, for, um, you know, black and women of color, even less. So, I, I, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll try and find where I found that. That is, that is astounding. Yeah. It's, I mean, I get upset when I see that a conference has 70% men and 30% women. But Wikipedia, which is, I mean, I use Wikipedia regularly. Yeah. I know it's great. It's upsetting. It's yeah. 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 And, and you know, I just wanted to mention something because I didn't get to kind of capture it in my post, but I think this thing about psychological safety that we were just t touching on is really important when we talk about whistleblowers, really important, really, really important because we want to tell people, we want to encourage people, especially those of us who are investigators, those of us who are prosecutors, those of us who are in corporate, you know, embedded into the corporate structure um, as chief compliance officers, chief ethics officers, and the whole lot. And we're talking to people all the time about, you know, feel free to speak up. Please come forward. Please come forward if there's anything that you see. But are we creating environments that are safe for people to speak up? Are, are those environments really safe? Or is it just the same old that when you speak up, you're ostracized, you're pushed to the side, you're retaliated against. And it's saying it's it's that same issue around feeling safe enough to say, because as I said in a post recently, nobody sets out to be a whistleblower. Nobody. No one set that out as their life goal. No way. It turns your life upside down. So you can imagine that somebody who, most of the people who have the bravery and the courage to speak up, tells you a little bit about who those people are and how they were their moral compasses. And even if they are involved sometimes in some of the issues, the fact that at some point they go, hang on, I got to raise this. I got to tell somebody about this. Do we create spaces where that those conversations can be honestly had, frankly had, even if that person is willing and, and they know that accountability is coming? Because we can't just keep telling people, speak up, speak up, speak up but not create spaces in which they can speak up. Yeah, I, I, it's one of my soap boxes and- um, Mine too. Someone <laughs> who has been retaliated against, who I never saw it coming. Yeah. Um, because it was doing the right thing. Exactly. And, and I, I just like, I've always told people, well, that's what it's for. But now as, you know, 
suffering the effects of it. First off, if you're going to do it, get a good lawyer. I mean, oh, it is, it's not a rash decision. Um, you need a really good lawyer um, just to protect yourself. Yeah. Like most whistleblowers will say they're glad they did it. But along the way, I mean, the, the carnage. Yeah, the car, the absolute carnage and carnage professionally, personally, yeah. everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Yeah, it's it is all consuming. And when I mean, when I listen to Dan McCrum's story on Wirecard, I, whenever I hear those stories, like Tyler Schultz for Theron, mm. I get goosebumps because until you're in it, and no one ever thinks they're going to be in it. Exactly. Like, we have optimism bias. We never think we're going to be in it. Yeah. I mean, we don't go to work for companies that we think do bad stuff. And then we get in there and we see how the sausage is made. And, you know, this is where I mentor a lot of new young professionals. And I say you have to have the walk away fund. I call it the FU fund. But you have to have it. It has to be, there has to be a line. And, the, and you start building that fun from day one. Yeah. Oh, my daughter. My daughter so has it. She's yeah. Just, from yeah. day one. Yeah. Because it means that you, it gives you the freedom to walk away. If you don't, if you don't have that, then you, some people are often tied in to bad situations because of the money. You know, I have a big mortgage. I've got car payments. I've got kids. I've got this. I've got that, and it keeps them tied into the situation. And then before you know it, you know, the SFO, the DOJ, the SEC are knocking on your door. And then your life is really in a situation where there's no reverse from that. And, you know, the the consequences are often devastating. And I was saying to somebody recently that in my experience, some of the people who we investigate, who I've investigated and prosecuted um, throughout my career, they've received no financial benefit from their from their their criminality paying they paid bribes on behalf of the company they paid you know they they did deals on behalf of the company and some haven't even when i say they haven't even received like you know it's not they're not even in you know high paying jobs or you know like they got a million pound bonus or nothing like nothing well the pressures that and this goes to like incentives and payments yeah. you know yeah. But it's hard to tell your kids, like, you know, you're not going to be able to go to camp or to private school next year because mom or dad, you know, got fired because we did the right thing. I mean, yeah, it's people don't understand it. There should be. And there are groups. There are support groups for whistleblowers. Yeah, it, because it's it's a it's a like, like I, we use the word carnage. You know, most whistleblowers, they find that their lives are turned completely upside down completely upside down um and I, and I what i'm really loving at the moment and we're having this discussion and debate here in the uk but i'm really loving seeing the centrality of whistleblowers now in terms of the discussion around ethics and esg and and, and governance and what organizations are expected to do um and i, and I love the fact that the whistleblowers are, are being placed really at the center of that conversation because they should be, they should be. Um, and you know, we've got the EU directive, which is meh. 
That's not really a word, but <laughs> hopefully you get the sound. <laughs> it, you know, it's it's a step in, in the right direction, but it falls far short of what is needed. And then, you know, for us in the UK, we've got um, an act which came into force in 1998 and is no longer really fit for purpose. It needs to be completely rewritten. Um, and, you know, whistleblowers are retaliated against. Whistleblowers don't feel safe. They don't feel secure. They lose their jobs. They lose everything for doing the right thing. And I'm not saying that people aren't, whistleblowers aren't not supposed to be saints. I was speaking to somebody the other day and I said, and we talked about this and they said, listen, look at the information that the whistleblower is providing you with rather than looking at the whistleblower themselves, their character, their personality, their background. Absolutely. Look at that at a later stage. But first of all, look at the integrity of what they have provided you with in terms of the information. Let that be your first focus. And I think it really challenged me because as investigators, as lawyers, often the first thing that we do is to look at the whistleblower's background. Let's see who this person is. Let's see what their motivations are. Let's see what their criminal record is like. Let's see if they've been having an affair in the office. And let's find the things and the skeletons in their in their closets. That's often where we start. So this person said to me, you know, I, I, I think it's the wrong way around. Look at the information first. Look at what they're telling you and look at, see if it holds water. See if it's valid and if it's valid, Take it and run with it. Absolutely investigate them, check them out later. But don't do that, don't do that first. Because often when you do that first, you discount everything else. So that's so interesting. So about, I guess it's like a year and a half ago, I went to a presentation where I spoke at and a very prominent, and I'm gonna say white shoe lawyer, got up and um, not well prepared, by the way, no good. <laughs> Nothing, just, you know, resting on his white shoe laurels. Sits up there and he's like, the first thing I do is find out who the whistleblower is. And I'm in the front row and I want to take my shoe off and literally clonk him in the head. Like, or I want to stand up and turn around and go, stop. Like, come on. Later in the bathroom, I see the woman who, you know, got him to speak. And I'm like, did I hear that right? Was I having a moment? She's like, yeah, he's just a little old school. And then recently I've come to learn that someone's hired him. And I'm like, why would you hire him? Like, so, I mean, instead of me saying to the person who I know who hired him, I should say the exact opposite. Look at the charge first before you look at the whistleblower. And that may have made that person go, okay, but I kind of think throwing the whistleblower under the bus is just the easiest thing to do. It is. It is. And it's our natural default. It's yeah. our natural default. And that's something that we have to switch. And that's why I think these discussions and these, this focus that I think has moved to, onto whistleblowing more so. And I think you've seen the same thing, you know, the discussion and the debates and the discourse around the importance of whistleblowers has really shifted, I think, in the last five, eight, you know, five to eight years it has shifted and that can only be a good thing because I think it gets us all to start thinking about actually how can we do this better? Oh yeah, this is, I mean, when I'm gonna say in the eighties and nineties, I didn't know what a whistleblower was. Most I mean, people, I mean, in the in the 2000s, you'd ask people who whistleblowers go, what? You, What's you, that? 
actually, if you put in whistleblower into the Google machine, it comes up with like snitch, rat, tattletale. I mean, the synonyms for whistleblower are kind of horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's something like truth teller or, I mean, I do know people who have used the alert line, you know, for nefarious purposes. I definitely know people who've done it, but, but I'm going to say they're the exception, not the rule. Absolutely. And actually what we tend to think is that they are the majority rather than the exception. And we all know, and, and again, even for whistle, even when we've, when I've dealt with whistleblowers as a prosecutor, a whistleblower may well have other motives. They may have a number of different motives because life is complicated. Nothing is, nothing is straightforward. And so they may have some kind of grudge against the, the company or an individual. They may have been passed over for promotion. They may have a grievance of some kind, but also the information may still be true, may still be accurate, and it may all be, can be validated. All of those things exist in the, in the, in the same situation. And not, not, not one of those things kicks out the other. And that's why if your focus is always on, okay, what is this information and what is the value of it? And can it be tried and tested? And is it credible? Your focus is on that. Then you've got, you've got a good start to your investigation. And then you can look at that. You can look at all the other things that the person, the person is saying. And for me as a, as a prosecutor, what, what I'm always thinking about is what, what get into the point where I'm charging this case and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm putting together my indictments and my charge and I'm thinking about witnesses. I'm thinking about my prosecutorial strategy. And so, um, even if I think a witness is, you know, they have dishonesty in their background and, and my whistleblower is somebody who possibly will not be able to take the stand and be able to withstand the pressure because of the credibility issues. That information that they've provided me with may still lead me to generate further lines of inquiry. So you still don't kick that out because it still has value. The only thing is you may not be able to put them on the stand. You may not be able to put them up as a witness for examination and cross-examination because they have possibly a background that maybe disqualifies them from that. Yeah. But there is still value to engaging with the whistleblower. There's still value to engaging with the information that they've provided you with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So now this is a little bit different, this topic, yeah. um, but I, I think it's so incredibly important. Again, another LinkedIn post and you guys, Lloydette puts out amazing content on this. <laughs> so this was from six days. Well, okay. Like from a week and a half ago from when this is, goes live. Go that's, a, that's like a lifetime on social media. Know <laughs> <laughs> where you are embraced, celebrated, valued, and supported. And this is from the, you know, Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and academic Nicole Hannah-Jones. And when I saw that all of this, my husband is in academia. Um, when I saw what UNC did and that they begrudgingly offered her tenure and I'm glad she gave him the bird, man. And she went north to Howard. Mm. I think it's, this is so incredibly important that I don't know. I, I want to hear your opinion of it because I have an opinion of it, but I I just love the go where you are embraced, valued, and supported. Exactly. So I, you know, I'm a 
I'm not an American. I, I don't necessarily understand the American system that well. I would not profess to know all the, the complexities of, of your political systems and all the other things that, you know, that are intertwined within this. But what I love about, one reason why I felt compelled to post that was really around the message that she was trying to convey, Miss um, Hannah Jones was trying to convey about value about our value as individuals and being in spaces where that is recognized and that is celebrated and actually having the bravery and the courage to be able to step away from an institution or workplace or an environment that doesn't recognize your value. And that's what I love about that is, is that essence. That's what she captures so articulately is, listen, if, if you're going to go to a place where people think that they're doing you a favor by hiring you, then that's not a space that you want to be in. And actually you should have the boldness and the confidence and, a, and the in, innate belief about who you are and the value that you bring to be able to say, well, thanks, but no thanks. I think it even aligns to our conversation that we were having earlier about clients, you know, and being able to say to the client, well, that's not how I work. <laughs> so if, if we can't deal with, you know, you have to understand this is how I work and this is what I deliver. Um, it's the same sort of conversation, I think, about understanding your own value and not allowing anybody around you to demean that, to cheapen that, to discredit that. And it's not about having a big head. It's not about being arrogant or thinking more of yourself than you ought to. But actually, we all have value in you know the things that we in our workplaces. We all bring something to the table. So that's what I really love about it, you know. I understand the context. I've read a lot about it since before I posted it. I read her entire letter. I read some of the comments. And actually, what I think is really interesting also is how one woman's boldness in speaking up has prompted others to also go, huh, say what? Hang on. It has shone a light and it has almost been a catalyst for change in many other academics who were like, no, actually, I'm done with this. I'm done with this. So she's, she, you know, she's done like a public service. I'm sure like the universities where people are leaving don't think so, but the universities that are going to receive these brilliant academics, they're like, thank you. <laughs> well, and, and this goes to, and you touched about it briefly, is the reputation. I yeah. mean, the reputation of UNC has yeah. dropped quite a bit and not just for the academics, but for the students because the students, this generation coming up, they are very in tune to social causes, social pressures. And um, so I, I, I think it's amazing. I think it's, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but Mackenzie, you know, Bezos Jones just gave a huge donation to Howard a year ago, no strings attached. So Howard's able to do this, but yeah. You know, there was no talk about money or anything like that, but UNC versus Howard, how many students are going to follow her? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it's when, yeah. Go on, go on. I, well, I just, I think it's, um, it's truth to power. It's yeah. take, taking on. Yes. And, and I saw the board makeup and, Oh, geez. Oh, my Let gosh. me guess. 
Okay, you guys can look at the board makeup. <laughs> There's a lot of attorneys on the board. No, <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah. But not diverse. Um, and this goes to, you know, Wikipedia entries, which of course I just didn't even know about. But yeah, I just, I, I really like the post. Um, and again, your posts, I, I say this all the time. LinkedIn is not a billboard. It's a book. And <laughs> as a book to learn from, not a billboard to sell something. And yeah. you are the perfect person to do that. Because I have not seen one thing on there where I'm like, oh my God, you know, lights are shining. It is all incredibly helpful. And I tell that to people, look at LinkedIn as a value add and sharing is caring. So. Absolutely, and and I'm I and you know thank you so much for for being so encouraging because you know I'm not I'm not a, a natural social media person not at all to be honest with you and I remember when I first sort of started out it was also so cringeworthy um, and you know for me it is about actually I have a great deal of experience as an attorney, as a, see now I'm using your words, as an attorney, <laughs> um, as, as, a, as, a, as a prosecutor, um, as a, an investigator to, to corporates, uh, on behalf of corporates. And that information isn't something that I want to keep to myself. Um, I, I'm able to share my knowledge. I, t I actually teach, I'm the, I'm the academic person who doesn't actually define herself as, as an academic. I teach at a couple of universities and I and I teach on, a, on one postgraduate, two postgraduate courses at the International Anti-Corruption Academy in Vienna. And I've just finished a stint at a local university teaching um, first and second year law students. So, but I'm like the reluctant academics. I'm like, no, I'm not really academic. I'm very practical and, you know, not really all about the cases. Um, but I, I love the I love sharing what I know, and I love being open to other people sharing what they know with me. So that's how I see this exchange as almost like a mutual exchange. But I love when people also say like a guy just commented on something and he's a young anti-corruption investigator in I think Liberia or somewhere in West Africa. And he said, "Oh, thank you so much. I feel like this has really, you know, helped me and sharpened my skills." And I was like, "That's." And I'm not looking for the praise, but I think, oh, that's great. Like mission accomplished. Well, and if we hadn't both been active on LinkedIn, Ellen would have never hooked up. I know, right? I believe I hooked you up with Mary Eastwood Jones and like- Yeah, who's amazing. <laughs> not only just the daisy chain of investigations, it's the daisy chain of connections. And like, yeah, it, you know, Kevin Bacon's six degrees or seven degrees, it's two. It's like yeah. two. So- so to close this out, and I know I could talk to you for hours, <laughs> hours. Um, We're like getting on our soapboxes on social justice issues, on whistleblowing, on investigations, on all of it, all of it. You guys are getting it all today. <laughs> yeah, that, is, that is true. So COVID, have you, and I know you have a family, so maybe not as much binging. Is there anything you've been binging like Netflix or anything that's kind of investigation-like? I love Lupin. Have you watched Lupin? I talk about Lupin. You read my mind. How did you know I was going to say that? <laughs> love Lupin. So, so let me tell you, I haven't been watched anything for 
years. Okay, I have a, I have a family and I have young kids. Um, so the time to do that is normally I put the computer on or the TV on, and then the TV watches me as I sleep. Okay, so, so but then my husband, he uh, two weekends ago, he was saying to me, "Should we watch Asan Lupin?" I said, "What the heck are you talking about?" <laughs> he said, "What about Asan Lupin?" I said, "Stop it! You are like annoying me, and I'm gonna like, like kick you or something." So then he was like, "Come, come, 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 come!" So he he'd already watched it all. He's like, "Let me let me introduce you." And literally in three days, I watched the entire thing. It was amazing. Loved it. <laughs> books right now on Kindle. Like, oh, okay. Look at the books. And they're short. They're like, some of them are kind of short stories. So they're so, yeah, his books on Kindle. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Luke, I'm on that. I'm on that. I'm on that. Yeah. So I absolutely love that. I hope they do it. I hope they do a third, a third series because it was great. Oh my God. He's so good. And you know, the main actor, he's a comedian. Is he? He's a comedian with like five kids. Yeah. He's Crazy. amazing. Oh my God. He is so good. Yeah. So and the acting in that was, was phenomenal. Yeah. But you, you should also watch Mayor of East Town. I've heard a lot about this. You should watch it. Just the mystery and the, the twists and turns. I think you might like it. Oh, well, yeah. I So yeah, that, that's the only thing I've been watched in a couple of years is is Lupin. Okay. So yeah, I, I absolutely loved, loved, loved that. Before that, it was like the House of Cards, oh, I the US that. version. Uh, I, I just really liked it. And then, you know, when you're like into something and then you can't, and then it got worse and worse, but then you couldn't because you're already committed. So that was, that way I just had to finish it out. And then they ended it. So but that was like a good few years ago. But yeah, so my first, my, my most recent net Netflix binge is, has been Lupin. Okay, so this is such the investigator law enforcement question I've been told by um, uh, previous guests is, what haven't I asked you, Loidette, that you want to tell the audience, the great woman in fraud audience? What haven't I asked you? It's the catch-all. Oh, gosh. Is it, do you want me to talk about something in investigations? Yeah. Oh, what am I, what are you going to ask me? Okay, so I could probably just tell you a little bit about what's happening here in the UK. Um, we have had, so the Bribery Act is 10 years old as of uh, this month, and we've just had our 10th deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, the SFO has entered into its 10th deferred prosecution agreement, and it's with a company called Amec Foster. Um, and what I thought would be interesting to share with you guys is that also early last month, the government decided to release a consultation um, about the landscape in relation to economic crime. And so this is quite complex, but I'm just going to share a little bit of, because I think it's important, um, is that the, the British government is trying to understand from those of us who are in the field, from academics, from lawyers, from defense practitioners, prosecutors, the whole gamut of, of people in our in our field about what needs to be done next in, in terms of how do we effectively hold corporates to account. And so they have this consultation period going and they're thinking about potentially introducing a new offense, which is failure to prevent economic crime amongst a whole host of other things that they're considering. And if that comes into, if that is something that is recommended by the Law Commission, 
um, who are still in the process of um, collecting information, running events, if that comes into play, then that will significantly change the legal landscape for us in the UK, like it did when the Bribery Act came into force 10 years ago. So that's one to watch. Okay, that, oh, see, you know, much as I harp on lawyers, you guys, I'm gonna say you do the bigger picture work, which long-term is so incredibly important. So we're a little more boots, investigators, a little more boots on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have the bigger picture to guide you. So, yeah. Um, I harp on lawyers, but you know what? When you need a lawyer, you need a really good You lawyer. need a lawyer. Yes, <laughs> <I do. laughs> So yeah, so there might be some changes. There might be some changes afoot in the next, you know, you know, 12 months or so. Let's see whether there's the will to, to actually push it through. It's definitely something I think the prosecutors want a change to the law. Um, but we'll see if there's the political will for that to happen. Well, we are going to have you back when it does happen. Yeah, we can talk about that. We're going to get really geeky. We're going to get into the detail yeah. and put everybody to sleep. <laughs> well, some people to sleep, but not yeah. any great woman in fraud. So, Lloyd, I can't thank you enough because honestly, and a huge shout out to Ellen Hunt, who I'm hoping to have on the podcast too, because we wouldn't have made this connection. And I just yeah. feel like, you know, when I come to London, I'm going to meet you in person. We're both going to be wearing pink. Yes. Um, the pink gonna... power will be strong. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel honored. Again, every guest so honored. But Lloydette, you are just, and oh my gosh, you know what Lloydette did? And I don't have my box with me. After our first call, she sent me the sweetest, and I mean sweetest because it was candy, little thank you that was just heartwarming absolutely heartwarming and i you know what you're just a good person and thank you Lynn. oh thank you for having me on your amazing great women in fraud podcast i was super excited to to come on here and it's been great chatting to you um really really had so much fun today so thank you so much thank you is Lloydette truly amazing? Yes, she is. I can't tell you how much fun I had. I think you could hear it in my voice the whole way through. And I have learned so much from Lloydette. You need to reach out and connect with her. Her content is not only awesome, but so incredibly helpful. I think she might be my most favorite lawyer, except my personal lawyer, of course. What did you learn from her? Again, a huge thank you to Ellen Hunt for the introduction. You are part of my daisy chain of goodness. See you next week, and we will be having a LinkedIn expert to help you with all things LinkedIn and your brand. Thank you again for your time and reviews. I love reading them, and you keep me on my toes.